I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. This year's Society for Neuroscience annual meeting, happening just this month, is a chance for neuroscientists to take stock of the past few years and forge a new path ahead in the wake of COVID. Joining me to talk shop on what's hot in neuroscience are Charles River scientists Karina Perator and Tony Atoniemi. Karina joins us from Massachusetts, while Tony is calling in from our site in Kuopio, Finland. Welcome, Karina and Tony. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Great to be here. I'm very glad to have both of you here. So can we start off with the SFN meeting itself? Is it fair to say that we are only back to sort of half normal? (laughs) Yes, I would have to agree with this statement. You know, we're only a few days post Society for Neuroscience making their announcement that there will no longer be an in-person portion. And this will be an entirely virtual show now. So, Oh, I hadn't even heard that. It's going to be totally virtual now? Oh, wow. Okay. We had anticipated this due to the rising COVID cases in the Mm -hmm. U.S. with the Delta variant, but we were still kind of hopeful that we would get to see our friends and peers within the neuroscience community and brawl face-to-face. I mean, what do you think, Tony? I mean, we sort of went into this year knowing that international travel would likely not be encouraged, but we were still kind of hopeful that some of our colleagues from Finland might be able to make the overseas trip. Yeah, I can I can definitely second that. And, you know, our team here from the Kuopio side, we've been participating in the meeting annually before COVID. For us, this has been always the kind of like the biggest neuroscience event of the year, where really we put a large emphasis on poster presentations, checking the science, meeting with our clients. So definitely we are not there yet in the in the normal world. So we are really looking forward to someday, one day getting back to the meeting in in the full, full format. And, and I mean, for personally, I haven't been sitting in a commercial aircraft in a, like one and a half years now. So, and 2019 meeting when I was last time attending. So oh, it wow. is a big thing, big thing for us and really looking forward to getting back to speed with this. So I understand that we've been continuing to work on rare diseases, even as COVID has been raging. I mean, after all, these diseases aren't going anywhere. So what are some of the promising advances in rare diseases like Huntington's or ALS in the past year or so? Well, there have been actually a lot of advances in both of these fields. In fact, it happens to be the two main CNS indications that Charles River will be highlighting and talking about from a scientific context at this year's virtual conference during Mm -hmm. the poster session. So um, we are coming off the heels of earlier this year when both you know, Roche and Wave Life Sciences halted their phase three trials because of the ASO or antisense oligonucleotide therapies that didn't show sufficient efficacy mm-hmm. um, without certain risks. And there was also a concern that the ASOs were not selective enough, meaning that they suppress the function of normal and mutant forms of Huntington potentially. And oh. this is kind of, yeah, it's an example of how not truly understanding the normal function of the Huntington protein can prevent the development of all these you know, novel therapies. But you know, scientists are learning more and more about the cellular signaling pathways that are involved downstream of the mutant protein. And so a lot of work that our early discovery team has worked in collaboration with consortia like CHDI involves inhibiting these particular pathways by using small molecules as modulators and potentially novel drug therapies. But 
Anyway, as a result of the ASO failures, researchers seem to be back to the drawing board, but they're also awaiting the results and outcomes of a larger phase three trial of an ASO for ALS. Mm-hmm. So the hope and the promise of these ASOs are not completely debunked, but then there's also other companies like Unicure that are using a different type of gene therapy, utilizing an AAV to deliver microRNA to silence the Huntington gene. And it's actually been dosed in something like 10 Huntington's disease patients as of yet this year. Wow. I mean, I know ASOs have been kind of a a hot item for a while. Is there like an additional risk with ASOs when you're working on a disease where the disease mechanism is not fully known? So what we have at least been seeing a lot with, uh, say, non-clinical studies, I mean, there has been really, really promising, you know, studies that we've run, conducted, there are really nice papers published showing mm-hmm. that these, these work. But I guess the, this is the new thing that is out there. There has been lots of reports on adverse effects. We have seen this as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's great to see that there are promising treatments out there. I'm, I'm really interestingly, uh, interested in following up the, the, the research, what is happening and go on. But definitely there are also new challenges, especially with the, you know, the safety aspects, uh, how well tolerated these ASOs are. And, and mm-hmm. a lot of these things are not yet known how they affect or induce these adverse effects. So there's lots of things to be done in the field still. Yeah, yeah I was. I just wonder about the diseases where, you know, something like Huntington's or Alzheimer's, where we're not entirely sure why they cause the symptoms they cause. We can kind of see things like the plaque buildup, but the exact mechanism isn't known. I just wonder if that leads to more risks when it comes to also using newer therapies to try and cure them where we don't understand everything about the therapy yet too. It's just kind of two unknowns together. Or, or yeah. even more, even more unknowns. <laughs> yeah. A universe year. of unknowns. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these CNS diseases like ALS, uh, they are multifactorial diseases. So it's just not one thing going wrong, but there are multiple things, multiple pathways affected. So this way you could even think that can one treatment have a really a significant positive outcome. Mm-hmm. With yeah, I would second that for sure. There, especially Alzheimer's is, you know, a lot of people have verified it's a multifactorial nature of it. And, you know, I'm becoming more convinced that Alzheimer's is another potentially disease of lifestyle. That isn't to say there's definitely a small population of people that have a familial predisposition and that's mm-hmm. where gene therapies could be really advantageous. But there is a lot of evidence coming out that this disease is a vascular disease or it's a disease, an inflammatory disease or the result of this excess inflammation, um, Mm -hmm. specifically neuroinflammation. And it's potentially a disease like heart disease or diabetes, but we're kind of all learning a little bit too late the preventative medicine that's necessary to prolong the onset or potentially reverse some of the inflammatory processes that have begun to kind of spin the ball out of control, so to speak. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I mean, this is a little bit off topic, but it just makes it a lot much sadder that you can't meet in person for conferences like SFN, because that's exactly the sort of place where you get different experts with different strengths in a same room, just kind of shooting the breeze and able to, you know, spitball ideas back to each other, which is a little harder to do virtually. Yeah, this is the case. But but then again, there are really nice positive findings as well. And I think, you know, where the like the ASOs and the viral vector therapies are showing nice results are some of these monogenic diseases, which are simpler in this sense that there is only one gene 
and the this defect is causing the disease. So, for example, in non-clinical settings, we have even seen kind of like full reversal of the disease phenotype. So that wow. we have a transgenic animal carrying the, the defected gene, and then with gene therapy, we can replace this, basically do an enzyme replacement therapy. Mm-hmm. So full reversal, this is something that you don't often see with, uh, say, say, CNS disease models, where you are talking about just a minor improvement here and there. Well, speaking of transgenic models, have there been any advances in models for any rare CNS disorders lately? I'll let Tony uh, answer that one. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough question. I mean, when it, when it comes to models, I mean, uh, there is this nice quote from a, from a British statistician called George Box, uh, who has stated that, all models are wrong, but some are useful. <laughs> so when we talk about model, we have to really understand that they are just a model. It's never going to be a full uh, recapitulation of the disease. And, and therefore, we have to carefully think how we are utilizing this model. What are the mm-hmm. aspects that we are reading? So, so this way, it's, it's of course interesting to follow up on what's happening in the field. But always it's an important aspect to discuss, you know, when, when we have, a, for example, a client coming in with a new target, new pathway. So how this could be, you know, involved in the models that we are using, what would be the best model to choose for this particular purpose. So that's that's always a good starting point. Right. And as far as I know, the the idea is to kind of create a tapestry of different models to try and approach a facsimile of the real thing by using them in conjunction with each other. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And actually, this is exactly the topic of discussion at our panel discussion at this year's virtual SFN. So we have the topic being human translational neuroscience and that, you know, there are issues with animal models translating into human, you know, clinical trials or studies. And there's Mm -hmm. also issues with the newer therapies like the stem cell models and organoids and and mini brains in a dish. So those are still in the very early infancy in their stages of development and being able to use them for screening purposes for drug discovery for CNS. But the field is moving in that direction. And and the goal is to have a better, you know, human translational model. So it, it still remains to be a challenge. But I don't know, Tony, do you think there's there's more hope around that in the coming years? I'm I'm sure there are, there is more to come. The research is moving forward. But you know, on that note, I think, for example, Alzheimer's disease is an interesting example because with humans, of course, it's the hippocampal neuron loss that's the very, you know, the thing that's happening and driving the the disease. The brain is is really in atrophy, getting reduced in size. But in in mouse models, even though they are building up amyloid. They are showing cognitive decline. It's it's really hard to get this neuronal death to appear in the mouse model. So that's mm-hmm. a big big difference to the clinical setup. But but this is just we have to understand that this is the difference and and work around it. Right. So going to another hot topic, what are some promising advances in cell and gene therapy for neurological disorders? I think we mentioned you know some of the promises of gene therapies, especially for rare CNS diseases, but I think there might be something worth mentioning about cell therapy options because, you know, a lot of people talk about gene therapies for CNS, but we forget about the, the stem cell movement and how stem cells don't need to be as they traditionally are thought of as just a screening platform for drug development, but an actual drug itself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's companies like Blue Rock or Aspen Neuroscience or just two of many companies that are kind of revolutionizing the concept that 
cells taken from the patient's blood or skin can be reverted back or reprogrammed back to a pluripotent state and then differentiated to a, a neuronal lineage and then actually transfected back into the brain whereby a patient who's suffering from for example, Parkinson's disease can receive replenishment of their dying dopamine neurons. And so, you know, these companies are emerging into phase one clinical trials already, and it does look to be very promising. But, um, you know, one of the problems that I do see with these therapies that isn't, you know, necessarily tackling the problem of why these neurons are dying at such a rapid rate, these cell therapies will potentially succumb to the same death as mm -hmm. the you know, endogenous neurons that the problem that is causing the death isn't cured. So mm. it's another more promising therapy in that it reverses disease progression potentially, but it may not actually cure it. So uh, I see. Yeah. And I think I think we actually have a lot to learn in this field from our oncology colleagues because they are constantly working with, you know, tumor cells, uh, right. immunodeprived mice, immune suppression humanized models. So this is, I think, where, where we are coming a bit behind on the CNS field, that we really have to think this, you know, when we introduce the stem cells, it really they can't be in a, in a hostile immune environment. So this is something that it's, it's going to be a big challenge that, that we, are, we are working on, but we have to introduce the CNS disease, which is rough in itself. We have mm -hmm. to take care of the, the immune system so that the cells will tolerate it, immunocompromised, immunosuppressed. So there are definitely challenges there that we have to work on to make this all, all feasible and, and still consider the animal welfare on the side. But, right. but I think we have a lot to learn from our oncology colleagues on, on this one. Yeah. And I think it's worth going back to what Karina mentioned earlier, because I remember in the very beginning of stem cell research, you know, some people were unhappy with how stem cells were harvested, but now we can take adult cells from the patient and turn them back into stem cells, right? I remember reading about that a while ago. Yes, this definitely caveats the ethical issue of using human embryonic stem cells. And I think that's where the movement is going. So what do you both see as the potential growth areas for neurological research in the coming years? I mean, we saw that the Society for Neuroscience did produce a timeline of future projections of neuroscience research into the next 50 years. And some of the items on that timeline include things like inclusive neurogenetics, incorporating, you know, more research into the female brain, which wouldn't that be advantageous for diseases like Alzheimer's, where more women seem to be more affected than men. Mm -hmm. The development of these brain organoids I mentioned earlier for drug discovery, the acceptance also that brain diseases aren't necessarily limited to neuronal dysfunction and death, but that there's, you know, a whole slew of non-neuronal elements. So I do see kind of a promise and hope with a lot of the neuroscience technologies that are going to, you know, that were projected out from this, this timeline of the next 50 years uh, becoming normal practice and, you know, people really taking advantage of owning, owning their health, especially when it comes to CNS disorders, because it's just, you know, compared to other diseases like cancer and heart disease, it seems to be more nebulous and there's still a lot more to learn about the brain and needs to be. Definitely. Speaking of the timeline, uh, Charles River, we created a interactive version of this timeline, including interviews with experts on what they think um, about the projected milestones on the timeline. And I will drop the link to that in the description for this episode. In the meantime, Tony, what do you think about potential growth areas for the coming years? Definitely, like we spoke earlier, that you know, the cell and gene therapies that I think they will continue to be to be big topics. 
and and I'm sure with you know like the the gene therapies with say monogenic diseases we're going to see some really nice I'm sure there's going to be really nice findings also in the clinics in the future and this could be then a stepping stone as as we move forward into these more complex multifactorial CNS diseases so it's it's a process it will take time but I'm I'm really looking forward to this and you know I think we we reference quite a few of these you know negative clinical study results bad bad news from here and there but but I think if we think about it, the bad news is actually good news because then we know that there is research ongoing. There are lots of lots of trials ongoing, so everything is is moving moving forward. And, and, and then again, oh sorry, <laughs> what were you saying, Karina? Sorry, I was just going to say, and it's more information, even if it's a negative outcome, it's more information for the field. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was actually a former former Nokia executive who stated actually that bad news is good news, because then you hear <laughs> what's going on. Good news is actually no news, because it's just, you know, you hear what you want to hear. And then if there's no news, then that is bad news. So then we really have to dig deeper and find out what's going on. So, yeah. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. This has been a really great discussion and I'm excited to see what comes up at the SFN meeting. And I guess the one good thing about it being virtual is that it is easier to go to um, and they'll probably have some of the stuff available online afterwards, do you think? I think so. Yeah, they typically have a lot of the sessions pre-recorded and available on demand post-show. So I'll look forward to that as well. Cool. Well, thank you, Karina. Thank you, Tony, for joining me today. Thank you, Mary. It was a pleasure.